Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. In 2011, Jill Abramson became executive editor of the New York Times, the first woman ever to hold that position. On the day of her appointment, she was quick to acknowledge those who had transformed the role of women in journalism before her. She cited, among others, Anna Quindlen, Maureen Dowd, and Nan Robertson, a reporter at the paper for over three decades. But there's no denying that Jill had put in her time. She was the Times' Washington bureau chief and then its managing editor before she was offered the big job at her hometown paper, currently based on 8th Avenue between 40th and 41st Street on the west side of Manhattan. I am totally a west sider. My parents were actually both born at home on the Upper West Side. I mean, everyone on both sides of my family. Native. No, they still live on the Upper West Side, like stacked together. I just feel like I'm walking in my sixth grade shoes. Well, for you, it's it's home. It's very much home. So you went to Harvard to study history. History and literature, yeah. And was writing something in some fashion, writing was what was on your horizon from the beginning, from back then? I knew I always liked to write. But it it wasn't that I set out to be a journalist. Freshman year um, was 1972 for me, which sounds like the Stone Age. But it was, you know, the McGovern-Nixon election. It was the dawn of Watergate. And so all through my college years, Woodward and Bernstein, I was like glued to their reporting and thrilled by that coverage. It seemed so groundbreaking and brave to me. So I kind of fell in love with at least the journalism end of writing. I always liked to write and was a fairly facile writer. But when you leave Harvard in 76, if I'm not mistaken, you go pretty heavily into the world of law. You were the, the first writing you did was with... The first job I had in journalism was for Time Magazine right. in Boston. I had been a stringer, which is a part-time reporter for them in college. So How long did that last? That lasted uh, two years. 
So that's your apprenticeship. That so was my apprenticeship. And what right. kind of what kind of things did you cover there? Oh, you name it, from the hot socks craze back then <laughs> to busing. I mean, it was from lifestyle to big issues unfolding. And where then. do you go from there? Well, what I did after time is I worked. Uh, in the election unit of NBC News. I'm a total political junkie and uh, work there. And I met Steve Brill, who's another you know prominent journalist here, whose specialty was law. And then Steve and I just got friendly. And he was starting the American Lawyer magazine. And while lawyers didn't particularly interest me, a number of journalists who I knew from Harvard or, or in New York had gone to work for him because it was going to be a writerly kind of investigative magazine that wasn't cheering on lawyers mm-hmm. but was really examining the power that lawyers and law firms wield behind the The legal scenes. perspective on a host so of issues. So that is – so when that was brand new, I cast in – I worked for that magazine for a couple of years. And then Steve bought a legal newspaper in Washington called Legal Times. Mm -hmm. And when I was 30, he said, poof, I'm making you the editor of this newspaper. (laughs) And I moved to Washington and did that. And you were ready to be the editor of something. I I certainly didn't think I was ready, but he thought I was ready. And how long were you there? I was there for a long time. I was there uh, for about seven or eight years and and working for Steve, both in New York and in Washington. And then I went to the Wall Street Journal. So for people who are lay people like myself, the Journal is obviously viewed now as a pretty right-of-center organization and their opinion page and so forth. And I'm not going to characterize you as being either direction of center, uh, but was that an interesting experience for you? How would you characterize the political culture of this journal then? The political culture of the journal then was that the editorial pages were extremely conservative. I mean, Paul Gigot, who is the editor of Mm -hmm. those pages now, is the heir of Bob Bartley, who was for a very long time the the editor of the editorial journalism at big conservative, oh giant conservative, yeah. and uh, you know operating as a news reporter in Washington at the Journal, like at the New York Times, there's a traditional separation between the editorial department and the editorial views of the paper and news gathering. And news gathering. And, but, you know, a lot of people don't know that. Even a lot of political people in Washington didn't know it. So in Washington, it was actually, it advantaged me because in 1994, for example, when Gingrich took over the House, like there were Republicans who would gladly talk to me. I ha- have always had good Republican sources <clears throat> because I think they felt, I can trust you because you're from the Washington. Street Journal. Uh, And so it was interesting. It was uh, sometimes awkward because in... In what way? Well, in 1994, uh, Jane Mayer of The New Yorker, who was then at The Journal, and I wrote a book about the Clarence Thomas, Anita Mm -hmm. Hill... uh, Did you have to get permission from... Norm Perlstein and then Paul Steiger. Barley was the other side of the aisle. On the other side of the, the screen, right. 
And, you know, Jane and I worked on that book for several years and found, you know, by doing a lot of in-depth reporting, that we thought the weight of evidence for sure was that Anita Hill had told the truth. And there had been a big campaign on the right to destroy her credibility, not only during the hearings themselves, but in the years after. And when our book was published, it made, you know, pretty big splash. That was your first book? That the, It wasn't my first book, but it was uh, the book that I'm proudest to have. And why? Would on. you say, it was, was it a combination of all these things? But was it what happened to Hill, the way they dealt with Hill? I think why um, the book was so important is that uh, those hearings ended and everyone in Washington just said, it's he said, she said, and we'll never know. Move on. And yeah. for me, that is bait. I really believe if you do enough digging and enough reporting, you can find the truth in, in most And things. act accordingly. And act accordingly. But why it created awkwardness at the journal is that when the book came out, even though the journal's news pages ran an excerpt of the book, the editorial page wrote an editorial like ripping, yeah. ripping us. So somebody that so, you're passing in the, in the hallway no, there. No, in fact, it was, was Paul Gigo. <laughs> uh, Paul Gigo himself. He let you know in no uncertain terms in writing. In fact. That's right. Yeah, how straightforward of him. And, no, and, it was his it's total right. Yeah, that's, that's show business. That's, so. <laughs> that's show business. What I always walk away from the Thomas event was that in the arc of decades of political life in this country, there's a kind of a score that some people keep, a moral mm-hmm. score. They're kind of like, you guys had your chapacritic. Right. When they're like, some of our guys are going to get a pass, like some of your guys got a pass. They don't push too hard here on the Thomas thing. So he did some tawdry things to this woman. That's a very perceptive point because Bork had gone down in flames after a very vigorous liberal campaign against him. And so there was a feeling of not again, not again. Right. So you're at the Journal in 88 and you've got the first Bush term. And the first Clinton term while mm-hmm. you're at the Journal. Yeah. What was it like for you covering Washington in that scene between those two? What was it like covering the Bush White House? What was it like covering the Clinton White House? The Bush White House was, you know, not that different from what the Reagan White House had been. Not. Did you have much interaction with Bush himself? No. I had an investigative beat on the nexus of money and politics. So I I wasn't the White House correspondent ever at the Journal or at the Times. I was always an investigative reporter on the political team. And who was responsible, would you say, for the Times being as concerned about campaign finance issues as they were then? Was it you? Was it were they saying to you, yes, I, they, go in that direction? Well, I think the Times wanted to hire me because that was a big strength of mine. I was well known for covering it. Uh, and had um, at the Journal covered just about every scandal of the 80s and early to mid-90s. When the Citizens United case came down, how did you feel about that? Well, you know, I I thought it definitely would change uh, the landscape 
of how money was raised and spent in the election. And and I think it and other court decisions did because we were in this sort of wild west of, mm. of spending uh, and the advent of the super PACs and all of that in the campaign. It, it, it didn't really surprise me because, you know, you had asked about Bush before. Um, George Herbert Walker Bush actually built... Uh, the state-of-the-art big money machine that was called Team 100 back in his day. And that was um, involving big soft money donations, which were ultimately outlawed. But in some ways, you know, Tip O'Neill was right, money finds the way. Uh Uh, So mainly I just knew it would have a big impact. Uh, and that it would create a lot of great stories for the times, which it did. And then Clinton came in in 92, and how was that different for you? Clinton, of course, had his own set of fundraising excesses and his 96 re-election campaign. That was when he was having the White House sleepovers in the sure. Lincoln bedroom for big and pardoning, donors. Uh, and, yeah, Mark Rich. Right, yeah. exactly. So... Uh, that's why the Times like wanted me because the journal was beating the Times on that story. And then uh, Maureen Dowd accosts you somewhere, and uh, she's got some ideas for you. Maureen walked up to me. It was at a book party for uh, Michael Kelly, who's another great journalist who sadly That's died in, in Iraq. But it was at a book party for him, and the Times was getting a new bureau chief in Washington. And I knew Maureen. In fact, we sat across a table much like we're sitting at now, across from each other during the Clarence Thomas Anita Hill hearings, which is kind of where we bonded. Uh, She came up to me at the book party and she said, do you know of any good women we can hire? And so I looked at her with a kind of what am I chop liver look. (laughs) And she said, you would never leave the journal. And I said, oh, Why wouldn't did you think I? That? Because I was, polite. like, doing really well there, and she just didn't think I would want to. But what she didn't know is that, you know, I grew up in a family that had two print home delivery subscriptions to the Times because my mom didn't like anyone touching the section that had the puzzle My kind of gal. It. I need my and, own. Uh, and, you know, every time I had a front page piece in the journal, my mother's brother would have to call my parents and say, go buy the journal. Jilly's got a front page piece. great piece. Yeah. You know, the New York Times was, you know, the the total voice of authority. Well, as my father used to say. true. That was what my father would say. That was was the way it was in my house. So Maureen says this to you. You guys are, you you have the one of my chopped liver moment with uh Maureen. And then what happens? And she had like the new bureau chief call me up for lunch. And uh, he made me a, a job offer. And I came. And then Maureen and I became completely inseparable. And how long were you in that position? I was in the Washington Bureau from 97. to I, I went into editing there. I became the deputy bureau chief to 
Mike Oreskes, who was who hired me. And then after the 2000 stalemate campaign, I became bureau chief. And then I had that job for three years. And so covering the Clinton impeachment, did you, <laughs> did you, well, I mean, I was in, I was in Africa at the time. Uh-huh. Watching the proceedings, you didn't on, miss much. Well, no, I watched it on the BBC on Sky TV in the in South Africa, where I was with my ex-wife while she made a film, and we watched it. Uh, for me, I, I always wondered: Did anybody really cover the Clinton impeachment as well as they might have? I think what was true is that you know every reporter who was covering the main proceedings was probably getting more information from the prosecutor's office, from Ken Starr's office, than they were through reporting around the president. And mainly, more people should have been reporting on what actually had happened and how this case developed. And at at the Times, I, you know, the Times was lucky in that they have a big bureau, and they sicked uh, an investigative reporter named Don Vanetta and and uh. me onto uh, onto Star's office, and I had some very good sources around the White House, uh, in the White House, and also from my years of covering the legal community in conservative legal circles. And what Don and I did is show that it was Monica Lewinsky and Linda Tripp didn't, you know, Linda Tripp didn't appear on Ken Starr's doorstep serendipitously that ever since a very conservative magazine named The American Spectator had surfaced the name Paula Jones. There was this plan with a bunch of young, relatively unknown conservative lawyers working to make that into the case that began and the that, basis of Those are the two sticks they rubbed together to get the whole thing going. You know, it's interesting because for someone, again, as a layperson, you look at the arc of political coverage and you wonder where there are advances like glaciers almost and retreats of of the power and the authority of investigative journalism in the post Ellsberg in the post-Watergate, like mm-hmm. that was a time in which the kind of Vesuvius of all this kind of work changed the course of our country. And do you find now that when, especially in your position now, people will come to you? Like, I, I know that if I worked at the Times, I'm assuming it wouldn't be diminished by the fact that I was experienced and I was trained. I went to Columbia. I'd still have my nature. And if my nature was to come to you and say, man, I got a story for you. I found out this stuff about this and this and this. Do you literally have to say to yourself, we can only have so much of that in the paper? No, right. I don't say that. But when someone is so eager, a little bit, I have a skeptical side, which is also saying, you know, we have to independently report and see, is this really the great story? Because, you know, there have been a number of cases in journalism, some of them at the Times, where you're getting all kinds of leaks from a prosecutor. and you, Miller. Well, that wasn't from, from a, a prosecutor. From a prosecutor right. That was from Iraqi defectors, mainly, and government officials. Right. But where you're getting, you know, only one side of it. But, you know, since you mentioned uh, Judy Miller, I think that that's actually a great case that I think about 
all the time uh, because I was Washington bureau chief at that time. And Judy didn't work for me, but she did a lot of reporting, obviously, in Washington and at the Bush White House and other places. And where the Iraqi defectors were telling these, you know, stories about Saddam's supposed active WMD programs. And uh, these same defectors had told their stories to people inside the government. So in some ways, like, the government sources pretended that they were confirming the information given by the defectors, but it was like one horrible feedback loop. And meanwhile, that was very loud because the defectors and the people in the government were aiding, you know, journalists to focus on these stories. And in real time, I don't think I appreciated this as I should have. There were dissident analysts at the CIA who, you know, were very doubtful of the the evidence. But with your perspective on history, mm-hmm. do you in any way have more sympathy for Bush 43 and Cheney and that crowd for the way they reacted in the post 9-11 world? Or did they act improperly based on the information they had? I think it's a combination. The Iraq connection we could certainly de- debate, yeah. but I think they they there was real reason to feel after 9/11 I was in Washington we had, you know, tanks in front of our building. It, you know, it was a changed world and that immediate post-9-11 period, you know, it felt So you're bureau chief in Washington I was, in 2001. Yeah, I mean on 9-11, we did so many stories that day out of Washington. It's more stories than we've ever had. And the story list from that day still hangs outside of the bureau chief's office. And, you know, I didn't get home until, I don't know, 3 o'clock in the morning or so and drove right past the burning Pentagon and... You know, my whole way home, you know, there were flags already up on all the streets. And then I got home to our house. And, you know, even my husband, who isn't such a, you know, overt patriot, had hung our uh, absurdly large Fourth of July (laughs) flag. And, you know, at that point, I just sat in my car and kind of absorbed, like, ooh, yeah, it was a you know, it was, it was a, changed, it was a great but that doesn't justify such a, you know, misreading right. of intelligence mm-hmm. and such an aggressive sales campaign for a war uh, based on, you know, supposed dangers that were not Real. Real. Well, how long did you stay in Washington after the attack of 9-11? You were there till when? What year? I um, left in the summer of 2003 to, go to come to, here. And to do what? To become the manager. To be managing it. Uh, well, now, so this is the beginning of a kind of a management, the management phase of your career, correct? I mean, you were writing and reporting. It was sudden because at that point, the executive editor and managing editors of the Times had both been fired. And when you became managing editor, how did that come down? Well, it was a time of tumult at the paper. Uh, It was after 
the Jason Blair scandal right. and after, you know, big questions were being raised about that period of yeah. leadership and also about our pre-war coverage. Yeah. Uh, you know, no one came and said, we're looking for a woman. But, you know, I was already in the leadership ranks as Washington bureau chief. That's like you were a, a big time job, sure. you know, that James Reston had and other mm. lions of of journalism. And, you know, Bill Keller was named the new executive editor, mm. and I had always thought the world of him. Uh, and, you know, he he picked me. Was it a hard sell, or were you ready? Did you want to go back to New York, too? You know, I hadn't really thought about coming back to New York, but... Because Washington the, seems so much more pure. I don't say it as a compliment to myself, but it was very much my town. Yes, yes. <laughs> my kind of town. Did you, no. did you think about that career-wise? Was management going to become a step back for you creatively, even? No, or, no. I mean, the idea that I could ever be managing editor of the New York Times, which is the number two job, just seemed like incredible. This was 2003, when after only two years as executive editor, Howell Raines was forced out due to the Jason Blair plagiarism scandal. Raines had worked closely with Abramson when she was in Washington, and their relationship had been a difficult one. Eight years later, she had Rain's old job and strong ideas about the kind of boss she wanted to be. Coming up, Abramson talks about what she wants in a story. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Mother's Day is coming, and Mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get Mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get Mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 
24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. The newspaper business is in trouble. Print readership is plummeting. And although digital subscriptions of the New York Times have exceeded expectations, the Times is still navigating toward a new way of doing business. The New York Times staff has seen three rounds of buyouts in the last four years. Despite this, Jill Abramson didn't hesitate when she got the call from the Times publisher Arthur Selzberger. It was the brass ring, and I jumped for it. And, you know, I certainly knew that the newspaper industry certainly has been going through, you know, rough waters and that there are, you know, secular changes in our industry. But I also have always known that the Times news report is like none other and that I think it's an indispensable institution in society, Uh the the Times, including editorial and all aspects of, of our news report. And I just have always believed that it's so worth paying for that it, you know, it didn't seem to me so odd. Everyone was saying that our pay subscription plan was a rash move and that news wants to be free and it would never work. And it has created a very significant revenue stream for us. So it was a very smart decision of Arthur's to to go that way. And how do you juice that up a little bit? I mean, what's the strategy? Uh, you must have some where you can, how are you going to build, build, build that online presence? Well, we're going to build on our digital subscription base for right. sure. Right. What's the obstacle to getting people to, because people will say, why pay when it's free? But it's not really free. Some of it's free. It's well, free I to a point for them, correct? Well, I think that our strategy is smart, that what we've done is for people who are, you know, inveterate readers and frequent users of our website, we've asked them to pay. Mm-hmm. You know, they want to read many articles and spend significant time on our website or on our for apps. Free. Yeah. And yet... We have a kind of basic good to go, you you know, if you want on our apps, the top stories, you can look at those. If you come, you know, from uh, a link from another site, you can read what you want to read. It's flexible. It lets us stay part of the open web while asking people who can't live without it to pay something for it. Now, you would come to the paper, I would assume. It's like someone once said to me about um, political figures. I remember when Giuliani was the mayor of New York, someone said to me that very often people will bring to these jobs the spirit of what their previous career was. So Giuliani's job as a prosecutor Prosecutor, was to catch people doing bad things. So he brought that to Mm -hmm. the mayoralty. His job as mayor was to catch bad people doing things, you know. Uh, and a, kind of a crime stopper of mayoralty, if you will. And I wonder if the same is true for you uh, in your job as executive editor, meaning you had your beat, so to speak. You had your desk. You've had your coverage, most of it Washington-based. Do you bring to the job your passion, and, and everybody knows that? There's nothing that can be done yeah. about it? Or did you, have to, did you have to broaden your passions in order to do the job? Well, 
my my interests were pretty broad. I you know grew up here in New York, and I was like a mini version of a culture vulture. Right. You know, when when I was small, and I'm a huge reader of books and articles about many things. So you had wide ranging so, appetites coming in. I I I did, and basically what, but I have a singular passion, and the singular passion with any subject is the story behind the story. You know, if, if, if it's the Metropolitan Museum chooses a new head, which they did, Tom Campbell, a couple of years ago, I want to know, like, what happened behind the scenes and what role did Annette de la Renta play in the choice? And it, there's always, like, a kind of juicy story but behind the public stage that, and, and, and you know, be- onto which events unfold. And I love that kind of story. And it can be about anything. We have, you know, an investigative story coming pretty soon about the world of auctions that I'm incredibly excited right. about. Art auctions. Uh, yes. Right. The other side of the coin for me uh, as a New Yorker is the Times, of course, is the you go through a period in your 20s and 30s where you like what the Times tells you to like in terms of film and mm-hmm. theater and so forth, restaurants. I mean, the, the Times is, a, is an arbiter of culture in this city and beyond like no other publication ever. Is that a, one of the roles you play where you have to kind of deal with that where, uh, you know, the, the Times has the power to aid and abet uh, certain enterprises here or destroy them? I think, you know... You mentioned uh, restaurant reviews, and I actually, I shouldn't laugh. But the one uh, you just had with the... uh... With Guy Fieri, (laughs) yeah. Um, But Frank Bruni, when he was our restaurant critic, uh, actually, because the critics often will go three times to a restaurant before they write their reviews, and Frank was reviewing a downtown restaurant, and I went with him uh, on his second visit, and I could just tell he did, he would never say whether he liked or didn't like at that point. But um, at one point in the meal, he looked at me and he said, because he always tasted what I was having, the peas in your dish are canned peas. Oh, my God. And then his review, which was really one of the best written things that eviscerated this restaurant, and he described in his first visit how he had witnessed the Poseidon adventure of wine spills, <laughs> which just like he etched was a good writer, itself Frank. into he was a you know writer. my brain. I miss but Frank. That that restaurant did close shortly. Do you know that Maureen thereafter? Maureen came to me once and she said, "Would you like to come with Frank to review a restaurant?" She said, I'm going to put together a quartet of people. It's you and I and Frank and a fourth. And she said, and here's how it works. Frank Frank orders for us, and he has to be able to taste everything. And then then when we're sitting with Frank, he takes me through how it works. He told me how he got the job and blah, blah, blah. And I said to him, where do you live? He said, I live on the Upper West Side. I said, you're kidding. I said, that's restaurant-wise, that's the most bankrupt part of Manhattan. He said, I know. He goes, but I have to live near the park. I have to go running every day. 
He goes, I'm eating lunch and dinner out 28 out of 30 days out of the month. And it was really, really a thrill to be with him and to have him tell me what he looked for and what he was was focusing on. But you had the thing with Fieri's restaurant, which reminded you of the residence the paper has. But if you could say, I mean, people used to joke and say that there was a— you know, a pipeline from Morningside Heights and the Columbia School of Journalism to 43rd Street. And uh, an argument could be made, I suppose I'd love to get your opinion about this, whether the Times was the bastion of uh, Ivy League types, uh, men and women, but mostly men in the 50s and on into the 60s. And if the complexion, if the stripe, if you would, the dominant stripe in that fabric was Ivy League men uh, for many, many years, what would you characterize it as now? Who's coming to you for a job and who are you hiring? I mean, right now we're hiring, you know, a lot of people that have digital skills. Right. We're hiring videographers or technologists. What percentage so, of the people working with you now are men and how many are women? Uh, women are 37 percent. You're a woman who's the first person in this job. And uh, I'm wondering, how much of that do you get in the sense that people expect you as a woman to help lift up that the rising tide of Jill Abramson mm-hmm. is going to raise all female boats now at the Times? Well, in part, I expect that of myself. I mean, I don't expect that I can ever raise all female boats, but I try to go out of my way, not to the exclusion of of men, but I do take a particular interest in the careers and work of many of the younger women at the Times. And I'm, like, open about it. If anyone has a problem with that, too bad. What sympathies do you have for Howell Raines today that you didn't have two years ago since you took this job? I have many, (laughs) yeah. I mean, I have sympathy with the fact that he, you know, was such, he was really a great writer, and he had lots of story ideas, and he could see in his mind's eye how he wanted them to come out on the other end. It was very frustrating to him when things didn't wind up the way he hoped they were, and, uh, when I was on the receiving end of that displeasure when he'd think some of the work when I was Washington bureau chief that was coming from the political correspondence and the Washington correspondence fell short, he seemed sometimes impatient and too quick to be angry. But I think my sympathy is he had high standards but very little time. Mm-hmm. Your day is so crowded with, you know, I'm scheduled with you know, 15-minute segments every day. And that, you know, can make you irritable when what you most care you about never have enough is, time in the day. is the quality of the journalism itself. And you have, you know, you would think that would be the thing you spend all of your time on, but it's not. Mm-hmm. And Especially now, would you say? With the financial imperatives, I mean, when the times well, some, was, but I think it just always there have been you know issues from the business side of the times and other things that like take your mind away from 
a focus on what is the smartest way into guns or any of the things we're covering right now. And he seemed too impatient to me when I was Washington bureau chief and he was the boss. And now I completely understand that impatience. The source of that pressure. In a way I didn't. As someone who was a great admirer of the Times and does depend on the Times for the truth, I read the Times cover to cover every even in the morning. I read half, and I read the other half at night when I'm lying in bed. What's the first thing most people read in the Times? They tell you the captions and they the fo- front page photos. They do if they're reading the print paper. I go to one column first because it's usually the best writing. It's the most moving writing, which is the obituaries. I read the obituaries yeah. every morning. It's some of the most beautiful writing. I know. It's incredible. It's the, the, that little digest bio of someone's life. It's an art. It, it is really a, is. It is an art. In the midst of talking with Jill about her career, I neglected to ask her about another important part of her life. In May 2007, early one morning, Jill Abramson was struck by a truck and nearly killed while crossing the street just blocks from the New York Times building. So I called her up to find out what kind of impact that event had on her. Hello? It's Alec Baldwin calling for Jill Abramson. Hi, Alec. This is me. It's you. It's you. Well, you know, we we are calling you and... Abramson spent three weeks in Bellevue Hospital with a broken femur and a fractured hip. Two years after her accident, she took home Scout, a golden retriever. She'll be four in April. So then (laughs) wind it back, and that's when she came into our lives. 2009. Yeah, 2009. That feels right. Uh, And, you know, she was obviously a, a tiny thing when we first got her. We got her as a puppy. We didn't. Um, adopt her. We uh, got her from a breeder. And, you know, I didn't know it at the time, but it was, you know, my husband was the one who pushed hardest and my two children also for us to get a new dog. Our, um, we, we had had a dog, a terrier who had passed away uh, at just a, a little bit before I had my accident. And uh, you know, it turned out to be, as the cliche says, uh, just what the doctor ordered. Uh, frankly, I did when I had my, my two children, just ridiculously obsessed with every aspect of puppy life. And my husband and I were at the stage of life where we were empty nesters. And, you know, I just, I think we're both built to take care of living things. <laughs> and, you know, we found ourselves in, you know, puppy kindergarten and, you know, worrying that <laughs> at, that Scout, you know, was the worst student in the class, yes. <laughs> which she somewhat was. And I found, you know, that especially late at night walking the, the dog in New York, I live downtown near uh, the Hudson River, is the best way to kind of get rid of whatever anxiety and tension you might have from the day's work. And Jill Abramson's work continues. Every day, her job is to take care that the news coverage of the New York Times remains unbiased and to take care of her special friend. She's just a bundle of 
constant uh, both joy and trouble, as you, <laughs> Alec, no doubt know from your experience with, with your dogs. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A Redwood Forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.